Morning, church. So good to see everybody. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapters 10 and 11 this morning. Find your copy of the scripture, flip there. And um, we're praying our hearts are soft to God's word this morning. If you're a guest with us this morning, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor here. It's my privilege to open God's word, share what he's laid on my heart this morning. Uh, If you're a guest and so bold after the service, I'd love to meet you, shake your hand. I'll be over here to my right, your left. I know it can be a little awkward to make your way down front, uh, but would love to get to know you and meet you. I'm over here. If that's too far a walk, I'll understand. There is a welcome booth out in the foyer, in the welcome center, just through the foyer, a booth there. There's a book at that booth. Love you to have a copy of the book. It's titled Following Jesus. It'll help you get to know us as a church, our aim, kind of what we're focused on, what we believe it means to follow Jesus, and uh, it's, it's short, as all good books should be. So, love for you to have a copy of that book. What else? Oh, uh, everybody's encouraged to go into Rathbun after the service, donuts, coffee in there. And if you're a member, regular attender, and you see somebody standing on the margins, it's our opportunity to include people. And by that, I mean, we all know how hard it is to try a new church, or to go to a new place and wonder, is anybody going to be nice to me? It's our opportunity to, uh, to include folks. So when you see someone stand on the edges, make sure you introduce yourself. Cindy, would you throw back up there Psalm 112? It occurred to me as I heard Matt open with this this morning, it occurred to me to ask, when we read this psalm, how do we read it? Surely the righteous will never be shaken. I felt shaken before. Am I not righteous? They'll be remembered forever. I find myself saying, uh, for what will I be remembered? Hopefully my righteousness. They'll have no fear of bad news. I won't ask for a show of hands. Who of us lives with the fear that at any moment the other shoe's going to drop? It makes me think of Psalm 31. Psalm 31 is about the woman of wisdom. And I love the line when the uh, pro- Psalm, uh, Proverbs 41 is about the woman. <laughs> Bear with me. Proverbs 31 is about the woman of wisdom. And what I love about the woman of wisdom is she can laugh at the future. She has no fear because she knows who her God is. They'll have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord, are our hearts steadfast. And my point in rereading this, flip to the second one there, Cindy. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They'll be remembered for, yeah, they'll fear no bad news. Their hearts are, and then at the bottom, the wicked will see and be vexed. Well, which am I, Lord? Do I pray this as a righteous person or a wicked person? Because I know me. I know what's going on. That I, I, I can fear the future and live with this overwhelming sense the other shoe's going to drop. I can be shaken. So which am I? Do I pray this as the righteous and claim these as true for me? Or do I, I pray this as the wicked person and I, I know the realities of my heart and, and more importantly, God knows the realities of my heart. The truth be known, I don't know myself perfectly at 53-ish. I'm still getting to know myself. And God knows me perfectly. 
that should humble us pretty significantly. He knows all our motives and our broken areas. So how do we pray this when we pray it? And I love that Matt opens with the Psalms often in worship. And I raise this because this morning, here's my question for us. And it bears on how do we pray this. My, my question is, are God's covenants with humanity conditional or unconditional? So when I go to Psalm 112 and I want to pray it, do I pray it with this fear that, gosh, if I'm not righteous, then these aren't my promises? And when I'm reminded of where I'm wicked, do I, do I read this with a conditionality? <laughs> kind of an if only. Or do I read this as unconditionally mine and something God's doing in my life? How do I read the, the scripture? How do I teach my children to read the scripture? So put that back up there one more time, Cindy. Are the covenants with humanity conditional or unconditional? And if the word covenant throws you, it simply means agreement. Imagine a legally binding contract which, by which God ties himself to humanity, promising to keep a particular commitment he's made. For example, perhaps you remember the Noahic covenant, the covenant God made with Noah and his descendants, a room full of them here this morning, to never again flood the earth in judgment. Genesis chapter 9. God makes this, pro this promise. This, he enters an agreement with humanity. Noah and all his sins, I'll never bring a flood of judgment. What was the sign of that covenant? Right here. A rainbow. Even today, the rainbow is recognized culturally to be a, a sign of God's care. Now, why do I say this? Well, crowds, just this week, were awed by a double rainbow that appeared over Buckingham Palace on the day of Queen Elizabeth's death. If they're odd about that, it's a pretty phenomenal picture, but they're rightly odd because the rainbow reminds us of God's promise of mercy. Mercy undeserved. Mercy promised towards humanity that is sinful, but God is committed to show us grace despite our sinfulness and never bring a catac cataclysmic flood of judgment against us again. Later today, Sherry will tell me I had too much coffee. So back to the question, are God's covenants with humanity conditional or unconditional? Well, the covenant with Noah was unconditional. There's no if-then statement. It's unconditional. He unilaterally promises, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'll never do this again. Bring a judgment of this sort against wicked humanity. There's no, if you do thus and such, then I'll never bring a flood again. No, it's just I'll never do this again. It's unilateral, it's unconditional. What about the Abrahamic covenant? Was it conditional or unconditional? Remember that Abraham was a pagan idolater. Let this sink in. His name wasn't Abraham yet. It was actually Abram. Joshua chapter 24 tells us when God found Abram, he was a pagan idolater. He probably worshipped a pantheon of gods. Uh, many people believe that he, uh, his primary deity was uh, uh, a worship of the moon and God finds Abram and he calls him to himself and wants to give him a land and descendants. He finds Abram in Ur which is an ancient city uh, at the northern end of the Persian Gulf, Iraq, modern-day Iraq. 
uh, ancient Babylon, Persia, right? He finds Abram there, and he says, uh, come, I'm going to give you a new land. So Yahweh reveals himself as the true God to this pagan idolater and promises land and descendants. Abraham obediently follows. He walks with his family to the land of Canaan. There in the land of Canaan, God enters into covenant with him and gives him a new name. Accordingly, he changes his future. He says, you're no longer Abram, you're Abraham. Now, what's interesting about that is Abraham means father of a multitude, and he had no kids. He and Sarah had been unable to have children, and they were along in years. Now God promises him a land, the land he's in at that time, Canaan, and, as, and descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And he gives him this covenant. What's the sign in the covenant? One hint, it's not a rainbow. Circumcision. There'll be no pictures. <laughs> Good, you're tracking with me. But suffice it to say that God marked Abraham in a way he would never forget that God had made a promise to him. This man, he's married to a woman. They'd been unable to have children. But he receives this promise, and for over two decades... It's not fulfilled. But every time he takes his clothes off, he remembers, God made me a promise. I'm marked in an undeniable way. Is it conditional or unconditional? This promise for uh, descendants as numerous as the stars and uh, as uh, the sand on the seashore and to have this land, conditional or unconditional, it was conditional. The blessing of descendants and a land was conditional. The condition was everybody had to get marked as Abraham was marked. Everybody had to be circumcised. In fact, if they weren't circumcised, any of Abraham's descendants, they were cut off. Pun intended. Wow. This symbol is no small matter. God was saying, I will be Lord of your future. I'll be Lord of your family. I'll be Lord of, of your descendants. I'm going to work in redemptive history through your descendants to bless, this shouldn't be lost on us, all the nations of the world. And the mark was circumcision. And as long as everybody took that mark, then they were a part of the nation, they were a part of the family, they were included in the promises that God had given to Abraham. God told Abraham, but not yet. It's going to be 400 years before this, you receive the land, your descendants receive the land. In Genesis chapter 15, he talks about the sin of the Amorites is not yet full, but in 400 years. Then your descendants will come out of Egypt, and sure enough, 400 years later, Moses leads the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out of Egypt into the land that had been promised. Moses leads them out of Egyptian slavery, just as God had said, and they start this long march through the wilderness to the promised land, the land that Israel, in part, has today, modern Israel. While in the wilderness, on the walk to the promised land, God makes a covenant with Abraham's descendants. The covenant was made through Moses. He's the mediator of the covenant. 
but it was made with the nation as a whole at the, at the base of Mount Horeb. It was a choose this day who you'll serve type of speech. And they vowed to be the people of God and for God to be their God and only their God. And so Moses goes up on the mountain to get the covenant stipulations, the Ten Commandments. And while he's up on the mountain, the people break out in idolatry. And we talked about this, I talked about this some last week in Deuteronomy chapter 9. He comes down the mountain and he's, he's met with this idolatry. They've made this golden calf and they're worshiping. The first two commands are, you shall have no other gods before me. The second command, the first is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second command is, you shall not make any idols, no graven images of me. And they've done that. And in anger, he throws the tablets down. They break. And then the anger of the Lord breaks out against the camp. And there's judgment right then and there. And then Moses rallies the people back together. He destroys the idol. And he charges them to make the Lord their God, to make Yahweh their God, and only Yahweh, and not to be idolaters. And they say, yes, we'll do that. And so he goes back up on the mountain to get a second set of tablets. The sign of this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, he's the mediator. So we've got the Noadic, we've got the Abrahamic, we've got the Mosaic covenant. The sign of the Mosaic covenant is the same as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant because they're descendants of Abraham. It's circumcision. But there's a symbol of the covenant that's fairly unique. It's the Ark of the Covenant in which the covenant stipulations go. This is an artistic rendering of the Ark. Moses goes back up on the mountain. When he goes back up on the mountain, God says, fashion a box. I'm going to make a second set of tablets. And the finger of God writes a second set of Ten Commandment tablets, which Moses brings down and places in the ark. And wherever the ark is, the presence of God is. And they place this ark inside the tabernacle, which is a really fancy tent that they move around the wilderness with. And whenever the tent is set up and the ark goes in the interior portion of the tent, then, and the people of God are around the tent where they're supposed to be, then the presence of God condescends and it's Edenic. It's like Eden. God dwelling with his people. That's what he always longed for was the Eden experience. And so he calls Abraham out of Ur and Moses out of Egypt, and Israel out of Egypt, and he's setting up this Edenic experience so that he can once again dwell with his people. This ark later goes into the temple in Jerusalem when the nation settles in Canaan and conquers the nations there, and then they build the temple in Jerusalem. It goes into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and once again, God's presence condescends on the capital of Jerusalem. And dwells there among his people. Now, the minute we hear that there are covenant stipulations, we should think, well, then it's conditioned. It's not unconditioned. There's an if then. If you keep these commands, then I will bless you in these ways. You'll, you'll have descendants and you'll have the land. Moses, in today's passage, revisits the conditionality of the covenant, the call of the people of God to keep the commands of God. So I'm going to start in chapter 10, verse 1, and I'm going to move through two chapters here a little bit and see if I can't put a finer point on how we are to read passages like Psalm 112. In fact, all of Scripture. So Deuteronomy chapter 10 
verses 1 to 2. At that time, the Lord said to me, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain. Also make a wooden ark. I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Then you're to put them in the ark. And so God has this, the symbol of his presence which uh, houses the stipulations of the covenant. And I love the fact that God, it was God's idea that we would have a copy of his work of redemption. It was God's idea that that he would write down for us and then charge other authors of Scripture to write his work of redemption throughout history, the work of salvation. And so he writes the second set of t- tablets. They put them in the Ark of the Covenant. Moses is looking back, he's telling, so this is what unfolded at the base of Mount Horeb. Well, they're now 38 years later in Deuteronomy, and he's looking back, he's saying, and I went up a second time, and I took with me this ark, this box, and I placed the commandments in the box. Let's jump forward to verse 12 in chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm going to give you today for your own good. Or do we picture the commands of God as for our good? Or do we p- picture the commands of God as a burden? So he's getting ready. It's some 38 years have passed since the, the, the covenant box was made, the Ark of the Covenant, and the stipulations of the covenant were placed in it. 38 years have passed. They wandered in the wilderness. Now they're on the threshold of entering the promised land and receiving their inheritance the blessings, knowing the blessings of God. And he charges them, now keep these commands. And he revisits what's known as the Shema, the greatest command, which is first, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Jesus quotes this. It's first revealed in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Moses goes into some detail about how we're to keep this command, loving God, and how we're to help our children keep it. And In chapter 11 here, he revisits them. Look at chapter 11, verse 18. Tie them as symbols on your hands, these commands. Bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your kids. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along your road, when you lie down, when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your kids may be many in the land the Lord has sworn to give your ancestors. So he talks about, here's how you're going to love God with everything that you have. Here's how you're going to keep the covenant stipulations. You're going to tie them. You're going to write them. You're going to bind them on the doors, door frames of your house. That means you're going to be immersed in the goodness of God given to us in his commands. Well, again, the covenant is conditional. They must obey these commands if they're going to enjoy the presence of God mediated through the Ark of the Covenant and if they're going to enjoy the blessings of God which is communicated through this land flowing with milk and honey. They've got to keep these commands. Moses reminds them of that at the end of chapter 11. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving today. The curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. So is the Mosaic Covenant unconditional or conditional? It's, It's very conditioned. 
The covenant with Abraham was conditional. The covenant with Noah, unconditional. And the blessings and the curses are spelled out. In fact, in, in stark detail, they're spelled out. Later today, read Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's a whole chapter dedicated to blessings and then the curses of obedience with blessings and curses with disobedience. And of course, the people of God fail in all of the curses promised in this covenant come upon them. Curses that include crop failures, drought, disease, invasion by foreign armies in their land, and then ultimately exile, where they lose their promised blessings. But that's not the final covenant, thank goodness, in the Old Testament. There's another covenant called the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7, at the height of at the pinnacle of uh, God building uh, Israel into a kingdom. He, sa- he promises David. He said, there'll always be someone on your throne for eternity. Well, it's just one generation later till the kingdom's divided and then um, north and southern kingdoms and then later exile comes and there's chaos. So this promise must be about something else. It must look forward. And of course, the Davidic covenant is conditional. It's conditioned on their obedience. They're they're keeping the Mosaic law. So what are we going to do? Because the kingdom was, in fact, divided and they lost the land. What about the new covenant? How do we today read Psalm 112? Is the new covenant conditional or unconditional? And here's where I think a lot of people get bogged down and lose their way, failing to see how truly good is the good news of the gospel. There's a little graph or a table on the screen. I'll work my way through it. Let me begin by pointing out that all the previous covenants look forward to God's care of humanity through faith in Jesus Christ. All of the covenants stand on their own. They have their own merit, the Abrahamic The Mosaic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, they all have their own merit, but they're fulfilled in Christ. For example, concerning the covenant made with Noah, God need not ever send a flood of judgment against humanity again because Jesus bore the punishment of all those who are trusting in him. The wrath of God was poured out like a flood onto Christ. The wrath of God towards our sin, the sin of all those who are trusting in him. And God's family need not be marked in the body with a sign of circumcision any longer. An external sign of identification about who's in and who's out. Why? Well, because God is marking our hearts. He's cutting away the dead flesh and bringing to new life those who are trusting in Christ. These are Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Dan prayed them this morning. All those who are in Christ are a new creation. Jeremiah talked about it. Ezekiel talked about the new covenant bringing new life. These Old Testament prophets foresaw what God was doing. God's people need not fear the curses of the Mosaic covenant, or, and this is important, work for the blessings of God's presence any longer because Jesus became a curse 
for all those who are trusting in him by hanging on a tree. And he became a source of blessing to all those who trust in him in his, his resurrection from the dead. All the curses due to us, a disobedient people, were carried on the cross by Christ. And all the blessings that we long to receive but vacillate in our obedience. All those blessings we long, Christ was perfect in his obedience. Finally, when King Jesus returns, and we sang it this morning, and I, I should say quite well, it was great. I love sitting up front because you just turn, my, turn your head a little bit and you hear the congregation singing. We sang this morning, your kingdom come. It's your glory, it's your honor, your kingdom come. Well, when King Jesus returns, his kingdom of obedience will come in full and he will reign over all the earth for eternity as the rightful heir to David's throne. Thus says Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 that work really hard to trace Jesus' lineage back to David, showing that he's the rightful heir to David's throne. Now you'll notice on my little table that I noted the covenant with and through faith in Jesus is conditional for Jesus and unconditional for those trusting in him. Here's what I mean by that. I noted this because we must remember Jesus was a Jewish man. And as a Jewish man, all the covenant stipulations of prior covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, all those covenant and the stipulations that went with them applied to the man Jesus. He had to keep them. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews explains that he came in the flesh for this very reason. Hebrews 2.14, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human could he die. Only as a human could he offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice? And only as a Jewish human, because the covenants were made with the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel. So Jesus kept all the covenant stipulations. Moreover, Jesus had to keep the covenant stipulations, the requirements of the law. And then he died as a sin sacrifice, the final one, and was raised from the grave, victorious over death. So as a man, Jesus was required to obey the law. These requirements were conditions because apart from his obedience to the law, no one will be saved. But through, because of his obedience to the law, all can be saved. And I would urge you this morning, begin trusting in Jesus, who was morally perfect. So the words conditional and unconditional must be used with care when talking about God's covenant. We have to ask ourselves, not only which covenant relationship are we discussing, but what aspect of that relationship are we discussing? Here's what I would say regarding Christ. The covenant through Jesus was conditioned upon his obedience, which he was perfectly obedient. But for all those trusting in Jesus, God's covenant promises are unconditional. We are completely secure in our salvation. We're saved apart from anything we do. Not even our faith is to our credit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. 
Not even our faith is a credit to us. God is working powerfully. He's finding Abrams at the north end of the Persian Gulf and calling them to himself, pagan idolaters. We talk about this a lot at Glenelg Bible Church. This is, very, this is great news. Because if I don't contribute, like if I'm not causing my salvation, then I can't lose my salvation. In fact, Jesus, I think it's John 6, he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. All those the Father has given me, no one will take them from my hand. If you're thinking, well, how can this be? Well, God sovereignly saves. And the good news is, because he's sovereignly saving us, we can do nothing to not be his children. The biological family is beautiful here. There's nothing I can do not to be my father's son, for better or worse. And Jesus said, you must be born again. Not you should or it's a really good idea. You must. You must enter the family of God through this new birth process where God brings us from death to life and then there's nothing we can do for him not to be our father because he's given birth to us. And we're his children, for better or for worse. We're his kids. We're his inheritance. What we were unable to do, namely keep the covenant stipulations, God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And I'll close with this verse, a review of all that I shared regarding the covenants. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There I'll ask for an amen. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us through Christ. Met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here's what that means. All the good that comes, well, globally, all the universal good there is, is because God is present in the world. The philosophers for ages have raised the issue, the problem of evil, how can there be a good God with so much evil in the world? C.S. Lewis answered that. He said this, I'll answer your question when you tell me how there can be any good if there is no God. You tracking? Paul writes that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. All the good in the world, and certainly all the good that we do, that, that we do fleshly, Apart from him, we can do nothing. And Christ, uh, Paul says, but through him, we can do all things. We live by the Spirit. So when we read the Old Testament, when we read Psalm 112, and we see the dichotomy of righteousness and wickedness, we say to ourselves, 
Well, that's the Mosaic Covenant. It's about a thousand years uh, ago. It was in, in, the, in the heart of the Mosaic era. Um, and so that's conditional. And, and the writer of that psalm is celebrating righteousness. But our reality is different. Our reality is that God has done for us in Christ what we could not do for ourselves. So when we read about the righteousness, we celebrate that we have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And when we read the condemnation of the wicked, we celebrate that God placed on him all the wrath towards our sin, Jesus. And we talk with God about the areas in our lives where we need to grow and go on to maturity in Christ, where we need to more keenly walk by the Spirit of God. Someone wisely said, we have all of the Spirit if we're trusting in Christ. If you've been born again, the Spirit is physically resident in you, and we have all the Spirit. The question is, does the Spirit have all of us? Meaning, are we submitted to Him? Paul's words. Are we staying in step with Him? Are we full of the Spirit? Those are Paul's words. Submitted, staying in step with, full of the Spirit of God. So we read Psalm 12, we celebrate Christ. And we cry out to him to finish the work he started. Finish the work you started in us. It's for his glory and our good that we would say that. I'll just pause. If if it's making sense to you, the goodness of the good news of the gospel, and you feel in yourself a desire to be born again, no one feels that desire apart from the Spirit already working. So I would say, and Paul with me, I would say, along with Paul, better, I would say along with Paul, let your mouth profess what your heart is believing and you will be saved. Let your mouth profess, Father, I'm sinful, and I see that you found that you've been working throughout time and space to provide for sinners like me through Jesus Christ. And I want to trust in Jesus. Let your mouth say what your heart is feeling the urge to say, and you will be saved. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask for your goodness to us as a people. We thank you for redemptive history and the, the testimony of the prophets throughout time and space of your goodness towards us. Now open our minds and our hearts to sing of your goodness and to believe more deeply. Take us on to maturity, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.